Well. Good morning. Let me dismiss the kids for Children's Church. They can head downstairs. Uh, while they're heading downstairs, want to pick up where Pastor John Eric left off. That passage in John 17 is such an important passage. It's part of what's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And in that passage, as John Eric read, uh, says that the world takes notice of Jesus in response to the unity of his followers. Um, you know, I've been a Christian for 25 years. I've been a pastor for 16 years. And my entire life in Jesus, people have discussed and debated and argued about what's the most effective means of evangelism. How do we share the gospel with people? And people have said, you got to have events. You got to have people come to events. That's the best way to share the gospel. And people have handed out tracts and they said tracts are an effective way to share the gospel. And people have even planted churches and said that church planting is the most effective means to share the gospel. But in the Bible, it says unity is the means by which we share the gospel. And all those other things are great too, but let's not throw out the biblical methods so that we can come up with new modern methods, right? If we want to see people come to Jesus, it's gonna be through the love that the church and those in the church have for one another. So that's not what I'm preaching this morning, but I just wanted to pick up where he left off. We're going uh, to be continuing in this series on Jesus in the Bible, specifically how he's foreshadowed in the Old Testament. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to get started, okay? Jesus, thank you for your word that you've given this to us as a testimony about who you are and also who we are. And I ask, Lord, that as we get into this, that there, we would just be filled with awe and reverence about you or toward you and that you would teach us and root us in your word this morning. I pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. I want to talk or start off talking to you this morning about identity and self-understanding. This is something that's very uh, uh, current in our, in our culture right now is the idea of identity and how people identify and what people identify as and what they find to be the primary uh, description or primary ethos of who and what they are. So some people identify themselves primarily by their sexual orientation or their gender, and that's the most important thing about them and everything else that they believe. It falls underneath how they identify that way. Some people identify primarily by their race or ethnicity, and that is the most important thing about them, and everything is seen through that lens and interpreted through that lens. Some people uh, their identity is primarily their political persuasion, and so everything about them falls underneath, I am this, or I vote this way. For some people, this is one of the more uh, sad and disappointing things, their identity is based on a sports team. And I listen to enough sports radio to know that some people's entire identity is based on a football team or a baseball team, and man, I just feel for those people. I heard a guy interviewed on the radio this week, and he had a... Uh, he had built an addition, a 2,000 square foot addition on his house, which is bigger than my whole house, by the way. 
He had built a 2,000-square-foot addition onto his house and turned it into a locker room with a bar so that he could watch Eagles games. And he said, you know, if this is what I can do with my life, I'll be happy. And I was like, woo-wee, up the bar, buddy. Uh, you know, like raise the standard of what you're going to do with your life because there's only 16 games a year, maybe 18 if you get two rounds into the playoffs, but this is the Eagles, right? So, you know, 16 probably most years. We've been on a good run lately, but we'll see. So, you know, how you identify yourself and what you view about the most important thing about you is important because the rest of your life is shaped by that. As followers of Jesus, the number one thing that we should identify as is followers of Jesus or disciples of Jesus. So we're not throwing those other things out the window. You know, we're not throwing ethnicity out the window. We're not throwing gender out the window. We're not throwing uh, worldview, nationality. We're not throwing those things out the window. We're simply saying that they are prioritized underneath our devotion and commitment to Jesus. Does that make sense? So... Who we are as followers of Jesus is our primary identity. Now, we aren't the only ones with an identity. Jesus himself had an identity. And Jesus himself was full of self-understanding. In fact, as you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the purpose of the entire book is God disclosing himself to us. You know, like, why does the Bible exist? The Bible exists for God to tell us what he's like who he is, and what he's like. So when you read you know, the, the story of creation in Genesis, you should be looking for, what can I learn about God in this? When you read through you know, those kind of meticulous Old Testament laws about you know, what you can eat and what you can't eat and what kind of fabric you can wear and all that stuff, you want to be looking for, what am I learning about God? What is God disclosing or revealing about himself through this? When you go through the stories of the judges and the kings of the Old Testament and the prophets and the poetry, then you get to the gospels and the epistles and then finally Revelation. As you read through those things, it's just... 66 books spanning 1,500 years by 40 authors from a variety of backgrounds and educational levels all telling us what God is like. So let's get a little more specific about that. We believe that Jesus is God, and how did Jesus understand himself? Did Jesus know that he was God? He did. In fact, as we'll get to in a few moments, that's actually what got him killed was him claiming to be God. As early as 12 years old, and, and man, I wish I knew more about Jesus' childhood. I would, I would love to get a, a little sneak peek into that. The Gospel of Luke tells us quite a bit about it because, as I was sharing with Diana earlier this morning, Luke interviewed Jesus' mom, Mary, and got the inside scoop on some things. But we learn uh, when Jesus was as young as 12 years old, he had a unique sense that he was the Son of God. And when he was 12 years old, his parents left him at a festival in Jerusalem. They traveled, they traveled into town on a short little pilgrimage for a festival, and then they left and went home in a crowd of people, and they had gone for three days before they realized Jesus wasn't with them. What I wouldn't give for three days without even knowing my kids were missing. I am keenly aware at all times where my kids are. I woke up this morning with two feet in my face. Now, sorry, I'm just venting now. They were Josiah's. Uh, but what I wouldn't give for three days. Anyway, I love my kids. 
they, they realized Jesus was missing. <laughs> I had to think of what I was talking about here. They realized Jesus was missing. They have to return back. They find Jesus, and Jesus is, 12-year-old Jesus, is sitting in the, in the temple teaching the elders. He's explaining the scripture to them, and Mary comes in, and Joseph is probably right behind her, and is like, what are you doing? Why have you done this to us? Why have you caused this anxiety? And Jesus, and man, I gotta just trust that Jesus was not smart like a t- normal 12-year-old, like he was, Jesus was kind and to his parents, he wasn't a smart aleck, but he said, don't you know that I would be about my father's business or in my father's house? So even at the age of 12, Jesus knew, he had an understanding of who he was. Now, how Jesus understood himself and how other people understood Jesus are two different things. Many people did not understand Jesus to be divine. Many people did not think he uh, was God. Some people didn't think he was the Messiah. So some people thought Jesus was a glutton and a drunkard. Some people thought Jesus was a sinner because he spent all of his time with sinners. He would go to parties where there'd be prostitutes present. He would eat in the homes of politicians. He would spend his time with shady people, tax collectors. And uh, people even thought Jesus was demonized. Interesting, right? I mean, this guy never did anything wrong to anyone. And that's how people viewed him. Now, The most common title that people used of Jesus was either Christ or Messiah, depending on whether they were speaking Hebrew or Greek. Christ and Messiah mean the same thing. They're just two different languages. Messiah comes from Hebrew, Christ comes from Greek. They both mean the anointed one. That was the way most people referred to him in the Gospels. You'll find that term used about Jesus more than any other term in the Gospels, but that is not the way Jesus referred to himself the most. He did call himself Christ. He did call himself Messiah maybe a dozen times. He did call himself the Son of God a few times. He did call himself uh, a few other things, but the number one way that Jesus referred to himself was the Son of Man. Over 80 times, depending on the translation you're reading, but about 80 times in the New Testament, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, which just literally means on the surface, Human being. (laughs) Jesus called himself a human being um, because Jesus was a human being. Now, to say Jesus was a human is not to deny that he's God. We, We have Jesus who has two natures. He is fully God and fully human. And so when we affirm Jesus's humanity, we're not denying his divinity, Okay, we're, we affirm both of those things. But Jesus called himself the son of man. Now, to us, that seems like, okay, what's the big deal, right? He, it actually means, uh, uh, well, in Hebrew it would be ben Adam or son of Adam because the word, the name Adam just means human. And so ben Adam, and uh, he would just, on the surface it sounds like he's just saying he's human, but here's the thing, there was more to that. And I want to look, there's, like I said, there's 80 some places we could look in the New Testament, in the Gospels alone, where Jesus calls himself the son of man, but I want to look at kind of like the pinnacle of when he refers to himself as the son of man. This is from Matthew chapter 26. This will be up on the screen. This is part of the story of Jesus' arrest before he's crucified. At this point, Jesus has had the last supper with the disciples. This is the night he is arrested. He's going to be crucified in the morning. 
They're trying to bring charges against Jesus to get him the death penalty, and they want a quick death penalty, not a death penalty in in seven years, but they want him to die immediately. Well, Jesus, of course, hasn't committed any, uh, any crimes, so the civil government says, I can't find anything wrong, but he has committed, or at least he's accused of committing religious crimes, and they had a religious court and so that'd be kind of like if you went to court at church, you know, and someone brought like a religious charge against you, which actually does exist in some churches, and this exists in the Muslim world as well. Uh, and so they brought Jesus to the high priest. And in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 63, way far into the passage, I'm going to pick up Matthew 26, 63. Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he's blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Now, I've read this passage for years and thought, now, what an overreaction. Jesus says, I surely tell you, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven, <clears throat> and what does the high priest do? Like this, in my Western, you know, two, 21st century mind, I don't understand why the high priest rips his clothes off, screams in his face, they spit on him, they beat him, they slap him. I'm like, what? What did he say? What, is, what did he say that has you so upset here? What's causing you to react that way? And the high priest says, blasphemy, he's blasphemed. And I'm like, if all he said was he's a human, what's the blasphemy? You know, like why are you reacting so strongly, so viscerally? Well, Jesus is not simply saying he is a human. He is saying he is the human. The, the pinnacle of humanity, and we're going to dig into this a little deeper from Daniel 7, but the high priest hears Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven, and the high priest is like, what did you say? What did you say about yourself? Because the high priest knew that the Son of Man was not just a title or a way of saying, I'm a human being. The Son of Man is actually a figure in the Old Testament. It is a title for this strangely human and divine figure that Daniel sees in a vision in Daniel chapter 7. So if you'll go to Daniel chapter 7, this will be on the screen as well. This right here is the key to understanding why the high priest freaked out. And this is the key to understanding why Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man more than any other title in the rest of the Gospels. In Daniel chapter 7, just a little background on Daniel. At this point, Israel has been attacked and taken over and pillaged by other nations, and they have taken the best of the best 
Hebrew, Hebrews, the men and women, and taken them off to their uh, palace, and they're gonna serve the king. So Daniel is one of those best of the best, and Daniel had this ability, he was having dreams and interpreting dreams all the time. And I want you to know, Daniel, Daniel was in, Daniel and the people of Israel were in exile at this point. Some other nation was ruling over them. They didn't get to do what they wanted, they didn't get total freedom. They were forced to stare at and be exposed to the other gods, the other customs. Daniel was even told what he had to eat. Now Daniel bargained and was able to come up with a diet that he was, he was able to uh, subsist on, but I mean, he didn't get to do whatever he wanted. Daniel was living in exile, um, and so one night in particular, Daniel's known for interpreting dreams and having dreams. This is in Daniel chapter seven, verse nine. He, he has had this, well, it's prior to verse nine, he's had this dream and he sees these four kind of like mutant creatures. And they're just, they're just like a composite of other creatures. And they're all evil. He sees four of them. And really quickly, uh, it, it does explain later, and, and we find out in history what those four creatures represent, four kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, four human kingdoms that are gonna come and just bring destruction uh, on the people of God. So Daniel sees these crazy things. It uh, says the four beasts. These are not the same as the four living creatures in the book of Revelation. These are four totally different things, Okay. But in this dream continues, in verse nine, Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. His vesture or clothing was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were open. So Daniel's having this dream and he sees these four nasty beasts and we find out later they represent four human kingdoms. But in this dream it says he keeps looking. In fact, he repeats that phrase, I kept looking, I kept looking. Like when many of us would turn away, he keeps looking. I shared this about Moses, a few, uh, maybe it was last week or the week before. He saw the burning bush and he went and investigated this Holy curiosity. Daniel keeps looking. He doesn't turn away. He keeps looking. And because he keeps looking, he gets more revelation. He learns more things. So he keeps looking and he sees thrones set up. We don't know how many thrones, but thrones, plural, means at least two. At least two thrones, right? There's thrones set up. Set up. And this creature, uh, sorry, not creature, Ooh, this figure called the Ancient of Days sits on one of the thrones and his throne has wheels. It's a chariot throne. Now at the same time Daniel was alive, there was another prophet named Ezekiel who was also alive. This is about 600 years before Jesus, 550 years before Jesus. Daniel and Ezekiel both saw the same thing about God, that he sits on a throne with wheels, a chariot. So Daniel sees this figure he calls the Ancient of Days. We know the Ancient of Days to be God the Father. This, this title is only ever applied to God. He, his clothing is white like snow. His, his hair is white like pure wool. His throne 
is ablaze with flames and its wheels are burning with fire. Not only that, there is a river of fire coming out from in front of him and then there's thousands of thousands of uh, um, angels around him and it is a courtroom. It says the court sat and the books were open. So I want you to just imagine this in your mind a little bit. A heavenly courtroom, okay? So it's, it's a courtroom. Legal decisions are being made. The decision that's being made in this passage is who has authority over the earth? Okay, remember last week I talked about the lamb and how the lamb was the only one who was able to open up the scroll and the scroll was the title deed to the earth and God was sitting on a throne and he gave the book to the lamb. You're gonna see a parallel of that in this passage. God is sitting on a throne. He's surrounded by angels, right? Um, his, his hair is white like wool. His clothing is white like snow. Fire coming out from before him, right? Everyone got that? This is God the Father. His white hair represents wisdom. His white clothing represent righteousness. And the fire represent the intensity of purity and holiness. And then the story continues in verse 13. Daniel says, I kept looking. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days. So now we have two figures in this passage. We have one called the Ancient of Days and then we have another one called the Son of Man. The Son of Man goes up to the Ancient of Days and the, uh, the Son of Man was presented before the Ancient of Days and to the Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. <clears throat> His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So we looked last week at God on a throne who uh, has the title deed to the earth and he hands it over to the lamb, right? And what did we say about the lamb that he would purchase from every nation people for God, right? Well, what are we seeing here? God, the ancient of days, has now given a dominion or a kingdom to the Son of Man. It's essentially the same thing going on here. It's just being seen from a different perspective. Now, Daniel is seeing this before Jesus is born, five or 600 years before Jesus is born. Daniel does not have the full understanding that you and I would have. So Daniel's looking in, in these visions and he sees the clouds of heaven and one like a Son of Man was coming. Okay, so he's, he's saying, look like a human, but he's riding on clouds. You know, in the whole Old Testament, there's only one person that rides clouds, and it's God. In fact, one of my uh, favorite things is this, uh, Native American Christians have a title for Jesus that I love, and I feel like we should use, the cloud rider. I think that is such a, cool way to think about Jesus and think about God as the cloud rider. And so there's only one cloud rider in the whole Bible and it's God. Yet, so this, this person's riding a cloud, so he's divine, but he looks like a human and I think Daniel's confused. Like, is that a person or is that God? Now we know that Jesus had both the human and the divine nature. But all Daniel knows is, okay, well there's this figure now, I'm gonna call him the son of man, he's divine and human. 
and I'm going to call him the Son of Man. So why did Jesus get such a rise out of the high priest when he said, I am the Son of Man? Jesus is saying, that is me, and I am that. What you've read about in Daniel 7, the Son of Man who God's going to give an eternal kingdom to, that's me. And the high priest says, that's blasphemy. Of course, it's only blasphemy if it's not true. And of Jesus, it is true. So if you and I said it about ourselves, it would be blasphemy. But because Jesus is actually correct in his assessment of himself, it's not blasphemy. It's true. Now, I want to look at the kingdom that's given to the Son of Man. He came up to the Ancient of Days and it was presented and was presented before the Ancient of Days, and to the Son of Man was given dominion. That means authority. Dominion is half of the word kingdom. Kingdom is just a compound word. The king's dominion or the king's domain is a kingdom. Jesus is given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. So he's given authority. Glory would be like honor or esteem. He's given a kingdom. What type of kingdom is the Son of Man given? It says, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. The Son of Man has this kingdom, and it is not just one group of people. It is not just in one place. It is even, as we'll see, not even just one point in time. The Son of Man's kingdom has representatives from every ethnicity, every language, every people group which is totally unique because there's no other kingdom in the history of the world that has had that. The Son of Man's kingdom is truly the most diverse kingdom that has ever existed. Even when the, the British Empire was at its biggest, and they say the sun never set on the British Empire because it covered every part of the globe, they still didn't have every tongue and tribe and nation, right? And so the, king, the son of man's kingdom is truly the most diverse kingdom that has ever existed and will ever exist. It is impossible to get more exist than every ethnicity or every language. Not only is the kingdom of the son of man diverse, it is eternal. It says his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, remember I told you that Preceding this in the vision were these four kind of mutant creatures, and they were not the Ninja Turtles, but that would be awesome. There are these four kind of like creatures, and each one represents a human king kingdom, and it was Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. We learned some of that from the Bible. We learned the rest of that from history, just looking at these four kingdoms. Where's Babylon? It's passed away. Persia? Passed away. Even Greece and Rome are not kingdoms anymore. They're, you know, Rome is a city. <laughs> what used to control almost the whole world has been condensed now to one city, and Greece is a nation that um, can't balance a budget. <laughs> and so these kingdoms have all essentially crumbled from their former glory, right? But the, the son of man's kingdom will never pass away. It's eternal. It's going to go on forever. No other kingdom is going to take over the Son of Man's kingdom. The Son of Man's kingdom is going to have every ethnicity and tongue and language and tribe, and it's going to last forever. Now, I know you know whose kingdom we're talking about here. The Son of Man is Jesus. And Daniel, without 
necessarily knowing all the ins and outs and details, is foreshadowing Jesus. So again, as I mentioned earlier, when Jesus stands up before the high priest and he says, the son of, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. He not only calls himself the Son of Man just to drive the point home. He's like, the Son of Man, you know, the one who's seated at the right hand of power as prophesied in Daniel 7. You know, the one who rides on the clouds as prophesied in Daniel 7. I'm definitely talking about Daniel 7. I'm not just referring to myself as a human being. I'm referring to myself as this figure in the prophecies. That's me. And of course, the high priest flips out. So the eternality of the kingdom of the Son of Man, that's contrasted with the human kingdom. So if Jesus is the Son of Man of Daniel 7, what does that mean for us? I mean, that's kind of neat that like, oh, wow, look how he wove the Bible all together. That's interesting. Maybe you'll win a Bible quiz or Bible trivia game someday. But when in between your Bible trivia games... This does actually have implications for our lives. It says in Daniel 7 that the Ancient of Days, God the Father, has given Jesus a kingdom over which he exercises dominion and receives glory, which is honor and esteem. Now, Jesus actually said before he ascended to heaven, what did he say? All authority or all dominion has been given to me. Okay, so not only was this prophesied, it's actually fulfilled, <laughs> or, or the initial fulfillment has taken place. There's more that we're gonna see, but Jesus was given all of that dominion and authority after he was resurrected. He said it in Matthew chapter 28. All of the authority and dominion have been given to him. So here's the thing. If Jesus has all dominion and all authority, every time we reject that, we are rejecting reality. We are rejecting the way that the Ancient of Days has ordered the universe. The Ancient of Days has said, the Son of Man, Jesus, he's got all the authority. So when we say, well, I'm not gonna live by Jesus' authority, now we are rebels. We're in rebellion, another word for that would be sin. We're living outside of alignment with Jesus and his kingdom, and we're rejecting, I, I mean, to me, that's rejecting reality. That's rejecting, understanding that reality is more than just what you can see with your eyes and hear with your ears and observe with your five senses. There is a spiritual reality to the world, and that Jesus is the king, he's the son of man. So every person and church that does not recognize Jesus' sovereignty and glory are out of alignment with Jesus' kingdom. So as individuals, we need to understand that Jesus has all the authority. We don't get to pick and choose how we're gonna obey Jesus. You know, we, we obey or we rebel. When we rebel, there are, of course, consequences to that rebellion. And... Not only is this true on an individual level, but there are, there are certainly churches that for one reason or another reject the, the authority and sovereignty of Jesus. I frankly don't know why you would even be part of a church that doesn't recognize Jesus' authority. I don't know if maybe you got that much free time in your life or you need friends that badly, but there are churches that, I don't know how you're even a church if you don't see Jesus, see Jesus as God. I think that's probably just tradition 
And, and many churches over the years have drifted away from initially a high view of Jesus to a low view of Jesus, to where Jesus had dominion and authority to now Jesus was a kind example. I talked about this also last week. Jesus is an example. He's not just an example. He's a ruler, right? He's a king. He's the one that the Ancient of Days gave all authority to. What else does this mean for us? Well, what we learn about Jesus' kingdom or the Son of Man's kingdom is that it's diverse. It includes every people group, every ethnicity, and every language. And what does it say? It says that they will serve him in verse uh, 14 of Daniel 7, that this diverse group of people isn't just going to sit around all day. They're actually going to serve him. They're going to do something with their energy. They're going to use their hands. They're going to use their mouths. They're going to use their muscles and their feet. They're going to probably break a sweat, and they're going to sing loudly. They, you know why God has us wear robes in heaven? Because there's no pockets. Okay, I just made that up, and I don't know if we'll be wearing robes, but like, you understand what I'm saying? Like, this is, oh, this is, this is the most common picture of a Christian in worship or on a missions trip. Hands in pockets, you know, like, like we just serve God by thinking in our heads or something like that. And so I just, this diverse kingdom exists to serve him. And that we're gonna serve in a diverse community and a diverse kingdom of people that are following Jesus. So here's what that means for us. Christians and churches that do not embrace the diversity of the kingdom of the Son of Man are also in rebellion. They're also out of alignment. Any, I want to be careful here because I might have friends that see this and, you know, send me a text message. Churches that, that either, I, I don't know too many churches that reject diversity. I think probably they're too culturally aware, smart to say we reject diversity, although there are certainly some, I guess, on the fringe. But there are plenty of churches that build themselves around their culture, not the kingdom. And that goes for churches of all ethnicities, that they build themselves around their culture, not necessarily around the kingdom. And I understand some of the rationale behind that. For instance, if this is a you know, church of first-generation immigrants who have come to a new country and they have no one around them who speaks their language, eats their food, celebrates their holidays. Like, I can see how you might want to gather in a group like that, so I do understand some of those. But that is usually the exception, not the rule. And so churches that reject the ingathering of all nations are out of alignment with the kingdom of the Son of Man. And Christians that reject that are out of alignment with the kingdom of the Son of Man. And it's rebellion. Now, I realize not every church can be incredibly diverse because I get it. Like, some neighborhoods aren't diverse. Some towns aren't as very diverse. I understand that. There are, of course, many ways to measure diversity. This can be about age. This can be about education level. This can be about socioeconomic uh, diversity. I mean, there, there's more than one way to measure this. I had uh, a family member 
make an observation to me once that I thought was interesting because I, this was not in a conversation with me. It was actually in a conversation with someone else. We were talking about diversity in churches and uh, this person who was a, uh, a, a person of color, or African-American man, was saying, listen, churches need to embrace diversity. And I was like, yes, this seems, I don't know, self-evident to me. And someone, a well-meaning white pastor spoke up and he said, well, I agree with you, but my town isn't very diverse, so what am I supposed to do? And I thought, okay, I'm interested to hear the response to this because I, 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 I can think that thought. I get it. To which point the African-American man said, maybe your church isn't diverse, but maybe your town is. Maybe your church, has, or maybe your church hasn't taken steps to be monoculture, but maybe your town has, and maybe you need to deal with this at that level first. Maybe there have been practices put in place that you haven't participated in, but your town has, and if you're gonna address this, you're gonna have to address it at that level. Does that make sense? I thought that is really insightful and a helpful way to think about this. So perhaps it's not a an idea or an attitude that's at the forefront on the surface of a church Maybe it's something that's back in the history. Maybe it's something that's deeper down, but it still needs to be addressed and it still needs to be dealt with because, listen, there's a kingdom that the Son of Man has and not every church represents that kingdom very well. And I want to make sure that we as a church don't ever get to the point where we don't represent the kingdom of the Son of Man. Now, the third thing that this means for us is the Son of Man's kingdom is eternal, it's not going to pass away over time. It's not going to be destroyed by another kingdom. It's going to last forever. I love this about Jesus' kingdom. It's going to last forever. It's started before any of us were born, and it's going to go forever. It's never going to end. It's going to continue forever. So you know what? That helps me sleep at night during election season. The government might change, but the kingdom is not going to change. And I realize that the changes in politics affect individuals differently. I get that. But the kingdom is not shaken. The kingdom is not changed. You know, I don't know if you know this. I was talking to Chico this week, and Chico's, you know, one of our older members, and he remembers a time when America didn't exist. (laughs) Just kidding. He said he watches this, so shout out to Chico. You know, America hasn't always existed and, but the kingdom of God has, and it's going to outlast America. It's going to outlast all the kingdoms, all the nations, all the countries. And so the kingdom of God should be the priority, right? Whatever changes, whatever shifts take place, the kingdom of God is an eternal kingdom. And so we don't need to worry about I'm not saying we shouldn't participate. I'm not saying we shouldn't be active. I'm simply saying we shouldn't be anxious about every four years an election because this kingdom outlasts all of that. Like, Jesus' kingdom is gonna last forever. It is currently lasting forever. And as long as we have that understanding and we look at things through that lens, I think that gives us a better way of viewing things. Have any of you ever been through a corn maze? You know what a corn maze is? It's like you go into a cornfield and they'll cut a maze for you to walk through. So if you go through a corn maze, or you can, some places... 
maybe Longwood Gardens has like a, a hedge maze that you can go through, I'm not sure, but you go through a corn maze. Once you're in the middle of it, man, you can't see, you don't know. You know, every, every intersection you get to is a life or death decision, if, at least if you feel the way I feel. You know, like, and you just kind of have to trust your gut, and you don't know if you're lost. So they can find lost people. And someone sits in the booth and makes sure that no one's lost. Ephesians 2 says we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. We get to sit in that booth and see how the maze works out. We don't have to be lost in the middle of it. I know that the world and everything that's going on is trying to get us out of that elevated position and get us into the middle of the maze so that we're lost and disoriented and scared. But Ephesians is like, no, you're seated with Christ in heavenly places. You can see what's going on. And one of the things that we see is that Jesus' kingdom is eternal. It gives us clarity. We don't have to be lost and confused and anxious and fearful, lost in the middle of the corn maze of 2020 but we actually are seated with Christ in heavenly places and we can get a heavenly perspective. All right, now, this is, I want to conclude with this. Look at how uh, the Son of Man or Jesus is described in this passage. He is given all authority, right? He is riding on clouds, or he's coming among clouds, enveloped in clouds. He's actually, those thrones, those two thrones, we assume he's seated on one. We find out in Acts chapter six, Stephen, or Acts chapter seven, Stephen looks up and says, I see the son of man standing at the right hand of God. So we assume he's on that other throne and he's got this kingdom, this diverse kingdom. So this is what we learn after Jesus is crucified and resurrected. Around the time of his ascension, what does he say? I've been given all authority. Then what happens? says he ascended to heaven and what was his vehicle clouds right and we know that from Ephesians we know from Acts we know from Colossians we know from the New Testament where is Jesus sitting at the right hand of God a lot of this has already taken place he's traveled on the clouds he's been given all dominion he's seated at the right hand the initiation of this is already moving The ball is rolling here, but there is a culmination that still needs to take place. And there's really only one part that we get to participate in, and it's this kingdom of every people. Because the last thing that Jesus did before he rode the clouds up to heaven and took a seat at the right hand of the Father, you know what he said to us? Go and make disciples of every nation. This diverse kingdom is still being built. Not every tongue, tribe, and nation is represented yet. That's where we're going. That's where history is leading us. But we actually get to participate in a portion of the final culmination of Daniel 7. You think that's just 25, 2600 year old picture from a a Hebrew exile? It's actually our mandate and our mission. We get to participate in the bringing of the every tongue and every tribe and every nation. 
And that's why we send people overseas. And that's why we give money to people who are overseas to do that. And that's why we establish a church that is not one culture but is many cultures and has 15 nations represented in it. I, at least we used to. I have no idea. Sometimes we only have 15 people represented in it nowadays. But you know what I'm saying? Like, if we're going to participate in the culmination of Daniel 7... The main part we get to participate in is the building of the kingdom of every nation. And so that's why missions is important. That's why sending people, that's why going, that's why giving, that's why praying is meaningful to us because we're not just doing this because we got extra money and we got too many people. We're doing this because this is part of the ancient of days handing off the earth to the son of man. And so when Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, as he's being killed as the first Christian martyr, he looks up and he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. That picture was like the last thing that Stephen saw before he gave his life to the Lord. There's, you know, that picture of the Son of Man next to the Ancient of Days, or the Father, was the... the final nail in the coffin before the first martyr gave his life for the Lord. And just like I said last week that this, the imagery of the lamb is a motivating factor for the missions, missionary movement of the Moravians, this picture of the son of man should be a motivating factor for us as we share the gospel with all nations, as we establish churches that can welcome all nations, as we make disciples of all nations. I mean, this is something that we have to do, and we're blessed enough to live in a city that has people from many, many nations, and we can have friends and neighbors from many, many nations, and we can do that. So I want to pray for us that, just like I prayed last week, that this imagery of this Lamb of God would drive us, that this Son of Man imagery would drive us as well. These really are two parallel concepts that run together in Scripture, the Lamb of God and the Son of Man. Jesus Thank you for showing us that you have always existed. Like John the Baptist said of you, he who comes after me existed before me. That Daniel saw you 600 years before you were born. That you have been consistent about your plan to make uh, a kingdom that includes representatives from every ethnicity, every language, every nation, and every people group. That even though you chose the nation or the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, their purpose and mission was to bring other nations and peoples to the worship of Yahweh and that, that, has, uh, that the church has been grafted into that and we get to participate in the bringing in of every nation to be followers of Jesus. Lord, I pray that when we have opportunities to share the gospel, when we have opportunities to tell people about the Son of Man, when we have opportunities to contribute to the establishment of a diverse kingdom that we would take those opportunities Jesus that when the door opens we would not be afraid to walk through it Jesus you've been given all authority we accept your authority we don't reject your authority Jesus we accept your authority we know that you're sovereign we know that you are holy we know that you receive glory and we want to participate in the building of this kingdom. And I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.
So as you go out this week, I want to encourage you to keep your eyes open for the kingdom building that's taking place. This is continuing through all of history. All right, thank you for coming today. Feel free to uh, bump elbows and say hello. Go birds. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.